what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? It's like a Hollywood movie, but for your ears, and we actually get the history right. I'm Neil White with my brother, David White, as always. How's it going, David? Pretty good, Neil. How about you? I'm doing great. Excited to be back and record another podcast, learn a little bit about another part of history. It's always the most fun part of this podcast, I think. But the quiz is always fun at the end, too. And today we got a Hollywood-based quiz, so that should be interesting. Well, David, should we jump right into it? I don't see why not. The question we always ask at the beginning of this podcast, Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's July 6, 371 BC, and the Spartan phalanx, the most feared military machine in the then-known world, are advancing on Leuctra in Theban territory, where an outnumbered Theban army awaits them. The most experienced Theban commanders recommend retreat, but their newly appointed general, Epaminondas, has other plans. Oh man, this does not seem like a good situation for this guy here. I know, you know, my personal philosophy has always been that he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. I don't know, you might call me a coward, but you know, I like escaping with my head attached to my shoulders. So tell us a little bit about this fearsome Spartan army. So in 371 BC, the Spartan army is the by far the most powerful military force in Greece. And why is that? They fight mostly like other Greek armies. They're composed of hoplites, heavy infantry, who form a phalanx, a rectangular formation that's very regular, roughly eight men deep, and then they charge straight ahead over flat terrain and drive everything available in the ancient world at this period before them. And this has been an effective tactic for hundreds of years, and it has worked for the Spartans against the Persian Empire, the largest empire in the known world of the Greeks of this time. It's worked for them against Athens, the the other powerful city-state in Greece at this time. So you might be wondering, if this is a common tactic that everybody uses, why is it that Sparta is the best? That is exactly what I was wondering, David. Yeah. So the most important thing that the Spartans have is a very small elite group known as the Spartiates, who are soldiers who are full-time. They don't have any other work. They just train to be soldiers and then fight. And in the rest of Greece, hoplites are a part-time occupation. Everybody is a farmer or a merchant or has some other kind of job that they spend most of their time doing and then only come out to be soldiers when there's a war on. So these guys are like the SEAL Team 6 of ancient Greece. Exactly. They've got more training, and they're specially chosen 
from the best of the available Spartan warriors of the broader Spartan army and just taken and put full time on being the best. And that's the Spartans, you might call it their secret weapon. They can use this force. They always place it on the right side of their armies. Like I say, it's a very standard tactical formation that they have, but nobody can stop it. And therefore, nobody can stop the Spartan army on an open field. It's terrifying. Nobody wants to face them. So how do the Thebans find themselves in this position facing the Spartan army that nobody wants to face? Well, the war that we're speaking of, the Boeotian War, is in many ways a consequence of the Peloponnesian War, which was this epic 30 years of war in ancient Greece between Athens and Sparta fighting for dominance over the Greek peninsula. It was massive. It ranged from Sicily to Turkey, thousands of soldiers, just inconceivable in scale given how small Greece was at the time. And the Spartans had won. And in the aftermath of that war, the Spartans had to pay for having fought this epic 30 years of war. And one of the things they did to pay for the war was they turned to their allies looking to raise some taxes from the lands of their allies, not just from their own lands or from the lands of the defeated Athenians. And one of their closest allies during the Peloponnesian War and the war with the Persians before it had been the city of Thebes. So traditionally, they're allies. But the Thebans don't like paying taxes to Sparta, especially as time starts to go by and the war is starting to fade from immediate memory. But the taxes don't go away, as taxes tend to stick around once they're imposed. Yeah, that's the annoying thing about taxes is uh, death and taxes. You always have to pay them, but the Thebans are, are getting fed up with paying them. The Thebans are unhappy, and there's political discontent in the city. And Athens was associated at the time with the concept of democracy. And one of the ways that the Theban discontent starts to surface is you start to find a democratic party cropping up in Thebes, supporting the idea of turning Thebes into an independent democracy that won't be beholden to Sparta and therefore won't be paying them taxes. And needless to say, the Spartans don't like that. Now, I can understand the impulse to not want to pay your taxes, but it seems like a bad strategy to form a democratic party against the most powerful military in the world that nobody wants to face. Well, the thing is that the Thebans are proud. They fought as Sparta's allies in the two wars that made Sparta's reputation. And maybe they don't have the elite Spartiates that the Spartans are so proud of. And maybe they don't have the reputation. Maybe when we talk about the Battle of Thermopylae, for example, we talk about the 300 Spartans who were there, but not the 700 Thebans. But you can bet that in Thebes in this time, they would talk about the 700 Thebans who were there, not the 300 Spartans. 
Fair enough, I guess. So this democratic movement gets started, but it doesn't take over the city initially. But the Spartans are unhappy. So the Spartans decide they're just going to annex the city entirely, crush this movement in the butt. I guess when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. The Spartans have the best army, so the solution to every problem is just crush everybody. Exactly. So in 382 BC, Pheobides, a Spartan general, marches into Thebes, seizes the city, announces that it's now Spartan territory. How does that go over with the Thebans? Well, not so great. I can't imagine why not. <laughs> a lot of the leaders of the democratic movement, of course, especially the ones who are well known, have to flee because they're afraid the Spartans are going to kill them, which they probably would have. And they flee to Athens. And the leader, the best known leader of the democratic movement in this period is a guy called Pelopidas. And he flees to Athens. But some of his friends remain in the city. And one of those is a guy called Epaminondas. Epaminondas is a Theban Democrat, but he's going to stick around in Thebes even though the Spartans are now in charge. Exactly. He's not a super well-known leader or anything. He's just a philosophy student hanging around in the city. Philosophy students hanging around in the city. Sounds like trouble. Big trouble. And I'm taking the philosophy student bit from Plutarch, who's late enough source that maybe not as reliable as some of the sources I'm relying on for other parts of this podcast. But anyway, so he's hanging around in the city, but he's still in contact with the pro-democracy movement, the exiles who fled to Athens. And so in 378 BC, once the Spartans have moved a bunch of their soldiers out of the city to deal with other problems elsewhere because Thebes is not the only one of their allies who are unhappy in this period. Epaminondas leads a coup, and as he does, the prearranged support from Athens, from the Pelopidas, the leader of the Theban democratic movement in Athens, arrives, and they seize the city and raise the banner of democratic freedom in Thebes. Well, this sounds good. We've got our freedom back. But naturally, the Spartans are not thrilled to hear about this rebellion against their rule. So they feel the need to organize an army and go and seize the city back. And so we go back and forth, back and forth. So the Spartans are coming back to seize the city again. But then they get distracted. Because when I mentioned that Athens had supported these rebels, maybe not very directly, but they had, the Spartans aren't thrilled. They just fought a 30 years war with Athens not that long ago. They don't want to hear about Athens coming back and leading a bunch of rebellions. So the Spartan army gets caught up in this decision initially actually by a very junior general who was not supposed to be making decisions like this, but they get caught up in a war with Athens instead of with Thebes. And Athens is much bigger than Thebes. Athens is much bigger than Thebes because that's the threat they're actually worried about, even if Athens isn't necessarily the most active threat. So Thebes gets attacked a few times by Spartan armies, but they're always very small. 
so the Thebans don't face them face to face. Instead, they avoid them, retreat to fortifications where they're protected, and wait them out. These small armies can't seize the city of Thebes. They're not big enough. So if the Thebans don't come onto the field, there's only skirmishing happening. There's not major battles, and the Spartans just aren't winning. Okay, so now the Spartans are actually struggling. Indeed. But unfortunately for the Thebans, that just helps force the Spartans to come to a decision. Up until this point, they've been sort of divided. Some want to fight Athens, some want to fight Thebes, but because they felt they could do it all, they tried to do it all and couldn't do any of it. But then, once it's clear that they can't do everything, in 371, the Spartans decide, okay, we're going to have a peace conference with Athens. We're going to make peace with Athens. And then we're going to turn around and turn our full army and march to Thebes and crush these guys. Oh, that's not a good development for the Thebans. It's not. The Thebans actually try to get in on the peace conference. They send a delegation and they're like, actually, if you're making peace with Athens, how about you make peace with us too? But the Spartans aren't thrilled with the idea. And the Theban delegation is actually led by Epaminondas, who's maybe not the best guy to lead a peace delegation because he actually wants to be a general, wants to fight a war, and he's really aggressive. So that all falls apart. So now we're back to where we started. The Spartan army is marching on Leuctra, 10,000 strong. And it's sort of hard to say exactly how many guys the Thebans had, but most estimates are between six and 8,000. So slightly outnumbered by the Spartan army. Okay, so we all know the famous 300 Spartans massively outnumbered. This time, the Spartans have numbers on their side, 10,000 to six to 8,000. And the Spartans are bringing these Spartiates as well. They're professional soldiers who are the best in the world. They've got 700 Spartiates. Uh, we can say that with a lot more confidence than most of these other numbers because they were so important in the ancient world that the historians, who are really vague on how big entire armies are, want to tell you how many Spartiates are showing up because that tells you how serious Sparta was about this. And that's a lot. 700, that it sounds like a lot. That's the majority of this unit, this special unit the Spartans have. So you would expect the Thebans to be terrified, and most of the ordinary Thebans are. This army's coming, and they don't know how they're going to stop it. So are you telling me that the guy who has the best plan here is a philosophy student? He studies philosophy. He was of the hoplite class, which means he's got some money uh, by the standards of ancient Greece, but he's certainly not one of the elite aristocrats of ancient Thebes. And he's got some military experience, but it's hard to say how much. He's definitely served in some armies, including alongside the Spartans, because Thebes, as I've said before, was an ally of Sparta for a long time. But now he's the general commanding this Theban army, and he needs to win. And remarkably, he's actually amazingly confident. Amazingly confident? Amazingly confident. Pausanias is one of the historians who writes about this battle, and he says, none of the other historians mention this, but it shows how confident Epaminondas was. He says, 
that the troops from Thespia, a city which was allied with Thebes at the time, came to Epaminondas and told them, this is crazy, we're all going to die, we want to go home. And he said, do it. I don't want anybody here who's afraid to face the Spartans. If you want to leave, just go. And they actually did, and a few hundred men from his army just left, and it didn't even bother him because he was so convinced that he could win. Well, that's a power move. He just called their bluff and sent them home. Wow. Why is he so confident? Well, at Leuctra, Epaminondas is going to change how Greek armies fight their battles. So at the time, the way the Greeks fight is basically these phalanx line up, charge at each other with everything they've got, and fight it out. That, that's basically it. Is that right? That's how it works. The phalanx was actually a remarkably clever formation in some ways. It's really designed to be the best possible cover for troops with heavy armor and a shield and a spear, which are the weapons that the Greeks typically used. And they're eight men deep, and that number is good number because it lets the line be the longest line possible without weakening it too much and it had been developed over these centuries where they tried different numbers and they decided eight is the right number and then it's straight ahead in a straight line because diagonals and trying to turn are too complicated for troops like ordinary Greek troops who aren't full-time professional soldiers. So it ends up being this remarkably simple formation, but there are good reasons behind it. So what you would see if you were on a Greek battlefield was this long, wide line of guys, eight deep all the way along, just coming at you, and they'd all be lined up. I mean, we're talking armies of thousands of guys, eight deep lined up. Exactly. Just charging. And they would deliberately look for flat fields. A good Greek general doesn't want to fight on a hill because that's messy. Hey, I hate running up hills too. Flat fields straight at each other. It's a remarkably simple, brutal, but effective tactical system that the Greeks had developed up to this point. It must have been quite a sight to see as long as they weren't coming at you. Yeah. Yeah, the discipline required would have been amazing. That's one of the reasons why the Spartans always put their elite troops on the right. Apparently, you hold your shield on your right arm, and that means everybody wants to go right to be better covered by their shield. So if you're not, don't have your best troops on the right, your army will tend to accidentally go on a diagonal because the guys are trying to sort of shuffle over rightwards. Okay, so this is how wars are fought in Greece. It does sound really brutal, but really amazing to see. What is Epaminondas' plan? Well, to start with, he's decided that he's going to take his best troops, and he wants them to face the Spartans' best troops. So instead of putting them on his right and the Spartans putting their best troops on their right so that the best troops would miss each other, He's going to put his best troops on his left, facing directly across from the Spartans' right. 
okay, that makes sense, but does he have a plan to keep his whole army from accidentally fading off to the right? Well, he's got actually a very complex plan. His next piece is he wants his elite troops to beat the Spartans' elite troops, but he knows that the Spartans are the most feared warriors in the ancient world. So he's going to make his elite troops line deeper, a lot deeper than eight guys. He's going to make it 50 deep so that they can just keep fighting long after those first eight lines are gone. Five zero fifty? 50, five zero. Wow, that is a lot deeper. Yeah, so he's rewriting the plan there. But he was already a little bit outnumbered, and now he's making this one part of his line super deep, which means his line is getting short. So that means that he's risking getting outflanked on his right. So he's got to avoid that. And the way he does it is by thinning out that part of his line so it's not even eight deep. But now it's looking weaker than the Spartans that they're going to be facing. So that's not good. Right. Aren't there spots where the Spartans could now break through his line since it's not as as deep? Exactly. But he's got another plan to deal with that. He's going to put his force sloping diagonally and he's going to put his weaker sections of his line farther back and his strong left wing is going to break right through the Spartans line and then turn around and win the entire battle and his weaker right flank is just making sure that the Spartans don't get to sweep around his flank and do the same thing to him by avoiding battle with the Spartans but always making a solid line in between his strong left flank and the Spartan line. So his formation is now entirely different from how the Greeks have always waged war. Wow, so he's changing everything up by basically planning to use his left side to break through and then turn and flank his opponents. Exactly. Now you said that Part of the reason they did this straight line thing was that, you know, these sort of turns, diagonals, uh, you know, were difficult. It, how is his army able to handle these sort of more complex movements and formations on the battlefield? Well, that's one of those questions that's hard to say with absolute certainty. Part of it is because the Thebans have been at war but not fighting for a few years now, He's had more time to drill his troops than an ordinary Greek commander would. Part of it is that the Thebans, before Epaminondas was even born, the Thebans tried to copy the Spartiates, the elite full-time warriors of the Spartans. And they didn't really succeed. They didn't have enough money to have these warriors be full-time. But they did create an elite unit that drilled a lot more than an ordinary ancient Greek hoplite unit. And they called it the Sacred Band. And he's putting that at the very front of his left wing, his all-important left flank. And they're going to be leading the actual maneuver that maybe less experienced troops couldn't pull off. Okay, so... This brings us to July 6th, 371 BC, and the Spartan armies are about to face a new type of warfare. Does this go as Epaminondas hoped? 
it goes probably beyond what he could have hoped. Of the 700 Spartiates on the field, 400 of them were confirmed dead at the end of the day and buried by the Thebans. Most of the rest of the Spartan army just broke and fled. And in the aftermath, the Thebans were pursuing the Spartans onto Spartan territory, not the other way around. So it worked. It worked big time. And now Epaminondas is going to be rewriting the politics of Greece. Yeah, so what does this mean for Spartan that their feared and powerful Spartiates have actually been destroyed? Well, the first and in the long run most damaging move that Epaminondas comes up with to deal with the Spartans, even after this battle, the Spartiates are still feared just because their reputation was that engraved into Greece that remembered. So Epaminondas decides the Spartans have been able to have this full-time unit that nobody else can afford because they have a lot of slaves. That was the basis of the Spartan economy, slavery. So Epaminondas decides he wants to free the slaves. Well, it's a noble thing to do, you know, for any reason, but uh, I guess it works if you're doing it just to weaken your enemy's economy. Yeah, maybe not the most noble reason to free a large group of slaves, but Epaminondas marches his army to the site of the ancient town of Messenia, which had been conquered by Sparta and was reputedly legendarily where the first slaves the Spartans had enslaved had come from, came from, and he reestablishes the town, fortifies it, and creates this new city in Greece that had never existed for hundreds of years before. And this both weakens the Spartans and also establishes a powerful position close to Sparta that's fortified, that's controlled by Thebes. So how does the story all wrap up, David? Well, it actually wraps up with a bang. As Epaminondas is rewriting the territory of Greece, he gets more and more ambitious. He starts meddling with the politics of Macedonia, just to the north of Thebes. He starts creating another city, creating Messenia worked for him, so he creates a city he calls Megalopolis, to be on the other side of Sparta, to be a second fortified position for Thebes. And this so disturbs, the upsets the power, uh, the power structure in ancient Greece that the unthinkable happens. Athens and Sparta ally and create a massive army to crush the Thebans who are becoming so powerful. Wow, so... Another example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now the Athens and the Spartans are getting together. And on the field of Mantinea in 362 BC, this massive combined army of Athens and Sparta faces the army of Thebes, of their allies known as the Boeotian League, of the Arcadian League, which Epaminondas has just founded, which... According to the ancient historians who write about it, it was the largest set of armies, the largest battle between Greeks against Greeks that had ever happened. And Epaminondas 
recreates his tactics that he'd earlier used at Leuctra and leads his left wing, his all-important left wing, personally. And he breaks through and wins the battle. But as he does it, he gets hit by a Spartan spear and dies. So the hero of the Thebans dies in battle. Does that end the winning streak for the Thebans? It ends their winning streak. By this point, Pelopides, who was Epaminondas' closest ally in Theban politics, had also died when they were mucking about in Macedonia. And the Theban politicians who are left decide they don't want to keep fighting this war in southern Greece that has been so huge. So they sign a peace treaty with Athens and Sparta, and Thebes goes north and agrees not to do some of the things that were so distressing to Athens and Sparta that they'd allied, and the war sort of ends, and the politics of Greece will never be quite the same. But it ends up that the most important, perhaps, of the events of Epaminondas's exciting life was actually a brief period of time when he was in Macedonia, where he met, and according to Plutarch, taught King Philip II of Macedon the art of war. And the Macedonians are going to be the ones who inherit Thebes' position as the most powerful state in Greece. Not Athens, not Sparta, not Thebes, not any of the traditional power players in the Greek world. All of these wars they've just had amongst themselves have weakened them so much that this northern nation they sneer at as barbarians has a chance to become the Macedonia of Alexander the Great. Wow, so all this leads to another big name you might have heard of, Alexander the Great. Exactly. Well, David, it reminds me a lot of Jan Shiska, which we talked about in episode five, the blind general who, you know, redefined warfare in ancient Europe. Here we have a general, not blind, he could see, but still impressive, redefining warfare in ancient Greece. And another parallel between them is that neither of their political systems that they fought for lasted very long beyond their death. Their military prowess helped to prop up amazing revolutions in the political structure of the world they lived in, but military power alone doesn't last once the general who grants it is gone, and once it's gone, the world has to come to a new and different stable arrangement. A lesson in there for all the would-be world conquerors listening to this podcast. Military power alone won't be enough to solidify your empire beyond your death. So make sure you go back and listen to episode 5 if you haven't already. It's very interesting about an underdog general changing the face of warfare. We have another one here in this episode changing the face of warfare. Thanks for telling us this story, David. Always happy to, Neil. All right, I promised at the beginning that we would have a quiz today, and our quiz today is a Hollywood quiz, David, because uh, we both know that Hollywood t- 
tends to get some things wrong when they do movies about history. So I thought we'd uh, take a look and see what Hollywood got wrong and what Hollywood got right. Up for it? All right, let's give it a try. All right, our first one here. Uh, the movie Braveheart, Mel Gibson. We all know that movie. And, of course, the famous look on Mel Gibson is that blue war paint that he wore on his face into battle. The question is, did that really happen? Did the Scots wear blue face paint into battle? Well, that's an interesting question because it depends on what period you're talking about. The ancient Well, let's talk about William Wallace. Wallace and Mel Gibson. Indeed, the ancient pics long before William Wallace had worn blue war paint. But by the time period of William Wallace, much later, that was I believe entirely extinct. Yeah, you're correct about that. Uh they just did that in the movie so that the audience will be able to tell the two sides apart, which admittedly is a bit of a problem when you're doing these ancient battles. It is. Yep. All right. Good job, David. <laughs> you're one for one in our quiz. Uh, the next movie is Stalingrad, which we uh, actually talked about in the last podcast because we had a question about it. But talking about the movie Stalingrad, which was focused around a sniper battle between a Russian sniper named Vasily Yastev, played by Jude Law, and a German sniper, Major Erwin Koenig. So the question is, did that sniper battle happen? Ah. I'm trying to recall how closely based. Certainly, there were famous sniper battles on the streets of Stalingrad that were by the communist propaganda machine. So I'll guess that it was largely accurate. Oh, you guessed wrong, actually. Uh, you're right that the Russians were the one who propagandized these sniper battles, but there's actually no record of any major Erwin Koenig or any German snipers in Stalingrad. So it would appear that that sniper battle mm. never happened. All right, another really famous movie here, Lawrence of Arabia. Of course, a huge, huge movie. And one plot point that happens there is Lawrence leads a cavalry charge against the Red Sea port of Aqaba after suggesting that they couldn't attack that port by sea. He suggests a land attack and leads this charge. Did that happen? Oh, well, Lawrence of Arabia definitely served alongside his Arab legionnaires, sometimes in combat. I don't know about this specific battle, so I'm really just guessing. Perhaps yes. No, he did come up with the plan to attack from land rather than sea, but the mounted charge uh, that's portrayed in the movie is happening at Aqaba and being led by Lawrence of Arabia actually happened 65 kilometers away in Abba al-Lisan, and it was the Arabs, not Lawrence, who led the charge. All right, David, two more here to go in our quiz. The next movie for you is The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which is a real mouthful of a movie title, but a Western movie set in America, obviously. Was Robert Ford really full of starlust for Jesse James and, and hence why he was singularly focused on killing him? Is that accurate as portrayed in the movie? It seems unlikely to me that 
that would be both available in the sources and also something that people would actually do trying to kill your stars is weird to me so i'm gonna say no this one actually apparently hollywood did a good job and got it right robert ford really was full of star lust for jesse james and was singularly focused on catching him and killing him so that's one movie that apparently did do a very good job of actually accurately portraying the history one more movie for you here david another huge movie shakespeare in love won seven seven academy awards and it portrays shakespeare as writing romeo and juliet inspired by his own romance is that how it happened given the remarkable debates that keep on cropping up every time some english scholar decides that he's found somebody more plausible to have written shakespeare's plays than shakespeare himself none of which i find convincing i think that we don't have the sources that would allow us to say with confidence that shakespeare based romeo and juliet off of any of his own experiences yeah there's really no evidence that uh this woman he supposedly in the movie had a an affair with actually existed and romeo and juliet was adapted from other sources as was most of shakespeare's work thanks for playing along david always happy to neil and thanks for listening to oh brother when art thou if you want to get us online you can reach us on twitter instagram and facebook at when art thou our website is obrother.ca, and you can send us an email at obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>